Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. It's great to be together today. Um, as we begin, uh, we are, we are uh, if you weren't here last week, we are uh, kind of in our journey toward Advent. Uh, Advent is obviously uh, something you celebrate at Christmas. Um, it means arrival, which is what Jesus did when he came to earth. The Word became flesh, the incarnation, the nativity scene, all of the things that we celebrate at Christmas. But the long tradition of Advent uh, in the early church was that it was not only acknowledgement of his arrival um, in the first century as a baby uh, in a manger, but also his return, like what it would be like when Jesus comes back and returns and we fully and finally live under his rule and reign. And to be honest, um, you know, it's been something that I've just sort of pushed off because a lot of reasons I talked about it last week, they just didn't want to think about it. A lot of people that I know that talk about the return of Jesus, uh, they're fired up about the return of Jesus only because they're sick of the way things are. It's like, I'm tired of people being where they are. Let Jesus come back, bring the elbow. They'll prove I'm right once and for all, and we'll be good. And um, so we're, we're, we're learning how to long for something different. And um, before I, I jump into that, I want to take a moment. I want to speak to our Leland campus. Um, Clay and Danny both mentioned this, but it's a, it's a really significant day. Uh, Ten years, I've been portable uh, much of that time in Leland. And I just want to say to you guys, to the volunteer staff, to Don and, and your team, thank you so much um, for your faithfulness, the presence that you guys have, uh, have had uh, in um, Leland has been extraordinary. The way you serve the schools and some of our, not, our, our uh, partners over in Brunswick County. And to finally be um, in a place where we're going to have you guys, we are going to have a hub from which to mobilize there is incredibly important. And this journey uh, over the next um, probably year until uh, we get that uh, building built, um, we just want to say thank you, encourage you. And uh, just let you know that we are with you as you guys, as we embark on this journey. So we can let them know. Uh, I think they'll better hear us say thank you for that. <clears throat> um, the, the thing that I've been doing um, in this series is we're, 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 we're looking in Revelation. I swore, I, people ask me for 23 years, have you ever preached a series on Revelation? The answer is always No. Uh, so I'm doing it now, and this is what we're doing. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter five, I'm not kidding. Uh, have you ever seen mogul skiing, like watch Olympic mogul skiers? When they get at the top, they go, go, they go, and sort of beat themselves to death. They get to the bottom, and then you're like, oh my gosh, you know, you can imagine how sore and jolted you feel. That's what today's gonna feel like. We're gonna kind of mogul ski uh, through Revelation. We're gonna start in five, hit six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, and just go right on through. All right, so that's what's gonna feel like today. But I, but I want to do this because I, I want for us to be able to see something different. Our, our, our aim is to learn how to long for this, this, blessed, this blessed hope. And I want for us to consider like something other than the fact that we can't stand the way that things are. And therefore, when Jesus returns, it just sort of takes everything. It just, it, it's just now everything's better. We don't have to worry about it anymore. And I want for us to consider something differently based on what has happened, because that's not a blessed hope. That's sort of, um, that's a relief. Um, a blessed hope is something that we long for. It's good news. 
And so I want us to read um, Revelation and to kind of begin to, obviously I can't do Revelation in 12 minutes or 30 minutes or six hours or whatever it would be. Um, so we're going to kind of mogul ski through it. But we've been talking about this idea and what, what I'm hoping we'll understand, there's this idea of transformation that Revelation sort of unfolds in these three cycles. One's personal, one's this sort of collective or this way of life, this, the systems, the governance, and then ultimately is what happens when, when things are finally returned to the way that God has intended them from the beginning, and that's what his heart is in the world today. And so we've talked about this, that the personal transformation is sort of an act or a process by which we are restored or returned, we're made whole, um, not only individually, but as a, as a people. This is, this is not just personal in the sense that it's me and you, but it's us. And then we talked about this idea over here of, of way of life is a way of life that sort of acts and lives um, with redemptive activity, that the activity of our lives is always redemptive. And how this unfolds um, in there. And, and, um, and what I want for us to, to observe as we, as we sort of wait for this, this Advent is this, this kind of posture of waiting for this blessed hope. And there's something that we need to pay attention to in our waiting, that something happens in you. Something is happening in you and something is happening in me. This has long been the, the posture of the church. It's long been the posture of, of, of my own personal ministry is what is happening in you, what is happening in me. Um, and we often will say, use this language, we'll say what is happening in us for the sake of what is happening through us. But it's also that something is happening with us. Something is happening with how we live our lives and the impact and the influence of our lives in the world in which we currently live. And we've been looking at this passage from um, Titus chapter two, waiting is not passive. Something is happening in us, something is happening, happening with us. Titus chapter two, it reads like this. For the grace of God has appeared and it offers salvation to all people. It offers, this, this is that idea that we are, that, that this is what the, the, the shepherds proclaimed, right? That um, the Savior has been born in peace on earth, goodwill to all mankind. That it has made himself available as salvation for all people. This grace that has appeared teaches us, verse 12, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I want for us to consider, for you to consider, um, this has been my journey, to consider this idea of being called to say no to ungodliness, to live godly and upright in this world. I want you to consider this something beyond your morality. Something beyond just don't drink, don't smoke, what do you do? Like something beyond that, what would it mean for, for us to see this as something that's more transformative than just, oh, I've got my sort of personal disciplines and my personal behavior aligns with some kind of moral code. But what if it was beyond that? What if to live godly and holy, to bring God's grace and the hope of salvation to bear in the world around us, what would it be like if we were transformed into those kind of people? And then we continue on. And it says, while we wait for this blessed hope, this is the activity of our lives while we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, and here's why, to redeem for himself a people, to redeem us, to redeem for himself a people, uh, from, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for him, sorry, to redeem uh, us from all wickedness, which is that, that 
pulling us out and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good or zealous for good works. So there's something that happens in us. There's a a purification that happens in us and then a movement that happens out of us. That is the posture of our waiting. That's, That's the picture I want to have in our head. So we look in Revelation chapter five, and it, chapter five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 are among the most violent and chaotic um, in the Bible. And um, so I don't know if you, uh, y'all know I love Disney. Toy Story has been long my favorite movie of all time. Uh, it, is, it is now being close to being eclipsed. Have y'all seen Moana? Dude, it is so good. So I have a new grandbaby. She's five and a half months old. We watch Moana all the time. It is like, it's her favorite movie. So therefore I get to watch it with her. She likes that a lot. And so we watch Moana and Moana begins. It's, it's on an island and uh, it's the story of Moana. She goes and, and it's, it's about the um, Tafiti uh, is the island and, and the, this giver of life. And all, it's, it's all this metaphor. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And um, the heart of Tafiti is stolen. By Maui. And so the, the grandmother's telling the story to a bunch of little kids in the beginning. She's talking about the monsters and Taka, the lava monster, and all. And it's just like all these kids, are like, oh my gosh, they're all crying and falling apart. At the very end, she says, and then darkness began to cover all the earth. And she has this tapestry, and I guess she puts some ink and it begins to cover the whole thing with blackness. It's just until death overcomes everybody. And the kids all fall out and they're crying. And that's kind of how Revelation is, right? <clears throat> it's like, didn't sign up for this. And um, so, so this is how um, it unfolds. It's interesting that when you begin to read the Old Testament prophets, you read Ezekiel, you read Isaiah, Revelation doesn't read that differently. And you begin to even see towards the end, it r- runs in these cycles. And some of them are extraordinarily violent and mean and threatening. If you do this, then God will. And it's just this annihilation of human beings. You ever read that and just you scratch your head and go, how how does this square with this grace of God that has appeared to all mankind that would give himself for us to purify for himself a people? You ever tried to square that up? A lot of people walk away from the faith because they can't get it square. Isaiah begins like this, and it's this sinful nation, unfaithful people, here's what God's gonna do. And then there's this vision coming out of chapter one into chapter two. It says, in the last days, the Lord's, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. The mountain of the Lord's temple, there's, there's all this temple language you'll see throughout, will be established in the high, as the highest of the mountains will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of our God. And he will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law of the Lord will go out. The word of the Lord will go out. And he will judge between the nations and will settle the disputes for many peoples. And as this begins to happen, it says they will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. I would often read this, especially um, younger, as I was younger. And you kind of give it a nod, you go, that's a good idea, but we live in the real world. I mean, that's not how things work in the real world. You know this, right? And so we end up diverting back to the way things work in the real world and we try to overlay what God is doing. So it's important to see what's happening and what what it means for us, what it means for you, what it means for me and how we think and live this sort of way of life in the world in which we live. 
So each of these cycles of Revelation, I mentioned this last week, the first one is sort of this personal cycle. The second cycle is this, um, this way of life or this collective. And then the third is this final. And it, it gets more intense and more broad with each cycle. So the first is the chapters one through three, which you could put down here and say, these are sort of, this is how you, know, you can think of the letters. And this is, you know, scholars, many people have done this. This is how Isaiah seems to be framed a lot of places like this. Um, and in Revelation, you have this cycle, and then you have a song. You have another cycle, which has the four horses from last week. Remember that? The four horses, which are actually, these are four of the seven seals. And then you have, uh, out of those seven seals, the seventh seal, we'll see this in just a minute, is another seven angels and then seven trumpets. And this just gets totally chaotic. And then you have another song right here. So this song right here at the end of, end of this first cycle, chapter four, the song goes like this. And you've probably heard this before. It says that the angels and the, they're all gathered around the throne and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and may complete the rest of it and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. That's the song that's being sung here. Then you have the four, seven seals. You have the angel with the scroll, the seven seals. Uh, the, four, seven seal, the first four seals are the four horses, the red horse, the white horse, the black horse, and the pale horse. Talked about this last week. And what we began, then, then it begins, it goes in, and the, the fifth seal uh, is the, the martyrs, the people who've been killed for the cause of Christ and their prayers. And the sixth seal is the great shaking of the earth. And like, what is, what is God saying? What is he doing? What I think is happening in this first section here as we get to this place and then move into this one. Um, these seals seem to be attacking our dependence or our use of authority and power and rule and reign. That's what it seems to be. And people are gonna disagree with me, that's okay. But I just want you to, I want us to walk through this and say, Lord, is it, this is what my posture, Lord, can you show me what the gospel looks like in Revelation? Can you help me see the grace of God has appeared to all mankind through the lens of Revelation? And it's interesting when you look at this, it talks about Babylon, it talks about Rome, it talks about Satan. These are all the kind of implications of most of the prophets and certainly Revelation. And I don't think it's referring to necessarily a specific nation, although it is, but it's talking about the idea of empire. And I'm not talking about like empire, like the empire strikes back, but I'm talking about like empire, like a rule, a way of life that governs, that preserves a way of life. It's a, it's a legal system, it's a political system, it's, a, it's whatever it is that allows citizens and people, humans, to participate in a particular thing. That's, it's, it's a, it's a, but it's specifically in the way it's referred to in, in, these, in these scriptures as a rule of life apart from God, a governing system apart from God that ends up being a quest for power. It ends up being in that quest for power that human beings do terrible things to one another to both get power and to preserve power. And this has been the case of all of human history since the fall. So that's sort of the context. It's, it's the empire. And, and the, the thing that's tricky about this is it isn't just an ungodly rule. It's a non-godly rule, which means it can be neutral. And when it's neutral, what people can do is they can take the system, grab a verse, 
and put God's name on it and say, oh, this is, the, this is what God wants done. And so we're just gonna do it in the way that seems best to us. This is what God wants done. So we're just gonna do it using the resources that are at our disposal. Threat, sometimes violence. So if you look back through church history, I mean, this is, this is, this is the, the Crusades, this is the Inquisition, this is all the things that most of us despise about church history and why the church has been the center of so many religious wars and so much killing, all these things. This is exactly why. And this is, this is precisely where you see this, this, subvers, this subversion in a lot of these places. So it's difficult to discern sort of how we govern ourselves apart from God, but it's not just in the systems. We used these three things last week. Remember this? Number one is an insulated division. Insulated division. We can create insulated borders and barriers that protect us from other people's problems. You know, you can do this, right? You can do it in a nation. You can do it in, in states. You don't like taxes, right? You move to Florida and you create, you create an insulated barrier from what you don't want or don't like or don't want to deal with. And it's not, don't, don't get into the good or bad, right or wrong. Just recognize this is what these kinds of things allow. It can be cities. It can be neighborhoods. It can be fences. It can be your own front door. All of us develop the capacity to create an insulated border that protects us from the problems of other people. And depending on your means, right, is how proficient or how able you are to do that. We also do this more subtly, that you create an insulated border such that you don't have to be known in ways that might threaten your own sort of image that you project. And so whatever we do to create, sometimes it's a stiff arm, sometimes it's relational, there's just gonna be a lot of different things. Insulated division, insulated borders, insulated boundaries. Number two is sort of the th piece by threat. And if you've ever like, if, you've, if you're a strong leader, if you've ever given an ultimatum, that's piece by threat, right? Do this or else. Do this with your kids, sometimes do this with your spouses, probably not a great idea. You do this with your employees, it's, it's peace by thread. It's, it's a precarious peace. And some of you live in this because you're the peacekeeper in your relational sort of network. You're the one who, may, who knows that John is mad at Sammy and blah, blah, you know, you know all that stuff, but you're the one trying to make sure that everybody's cool. And it's not threat. It's manipulation or it's a pseudo piece or it's propping up or it's using all these other mechanisms to make sure that we preserve this thing that we have because otherwise it'll all collapse. It's peace by threat or some, some precarious form of peace. And then third is what I call sort of scarcity prosperity. And this is just the relentlessness of our comp competitiveness with one another. It's that, you know, whose business is bigger, whose house is bigger, whose car is cooler, whose clothes are nicer, who looks better, who's this, who's that, which church is bigger, right? It's so funny, I, we go to all these conferences, everybody's like, how big is your, that's the first question people ask. I'm like, and we're keeping score again. COVID's over, let's keep scoring again. And it's like, this is this, is this, this idea that if, if, think about this, how many of you, I mean, right, we, I'm gonna say you, we, we as a culture, we raise our kids. If you don't get into this school and do this thing and get this thing right and get this, you're, something's gonna be off the rails. Because if, if we don't take for ourselves what we can, someone else is going to. And it's this relentless scarcity mindset. And what, what, I, what I mean, because here's the thing, there's a reality that 
There are ways by getting ahead and by managing insulated borders and protecting yourself that you can find a sense of security. You get enough money and you live in the right place at the right time. And the, you, know, you, you can insulate yourself from a lot of, you create a lot of comfort for yourself and create a lot of security. But here's what we understand. That false security is still a sense of security. This is what we have to be on guard for. You can, you can find security and make security and cause security to happen for yourself and for your tribe. And it can be a false security, but nevertheless, it still provides a sense of security. This is what's at stake in us. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who's, who's written a, a bunch. Oh, let me don't go there. Let me, let's, not, let's not go there yet. Um, so here's what happens. You have these four horses. You have the um, blood of the martyrs. You have, then the, the angel opens up and there's these seven, uh, seven trumpets that unfold. And these seven trumpets unfold and it basically begins with, well, let's read this together. Revelation chapter eight, verse five. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This means that something is about to happen that people are like leaning in and going, whoa, this is, this is not what I expected. When I saw the seven angels who stand before God, verse two, and the seven trumpets were given to them, another angel who had a golden censer or a bowl came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people and on the golden altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. So there's this picture, right? There's this bowl that the angel has and it is filled with all the prayers of God's people. And what they are asking for is for God to rain down his wrath on the world. So there are all these prayers and they're collected in this golden censure and they're bringing them in and now they're before God and the aroma, the incense of these prayers are going up before God. He's about to answer our prayers. And then here's how it unfolds. Remember, this is like Moana. Think about this. Not the same, but I don't know somebody go, oh, he says it's like Moana. It's not exactly the same. Verse five, the angel took the censure filled it with fire from the altar, and then he hurled it at the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, and boom, death and destruction. Then it just unfolds like the plagues of Egypt and uh, this undoing of all the creation narrative. The mountains crumble, the stars fall, all this stuff happens on the earth. And it's just death and death and more death. This goes all the way through. And here's the culmination of that, of that whole section is that after all of this, we ask God to bring his vengeance and his wrath and the people still did not repent. That's like we hit the mogul, we bounce off. Revelation chapter nine, verse 21 says, the people still refused to listen or to repent. And we think about this idea of what happens in us, what God, it was happening with us. I want our idea of transformation to have more imagination than what we do. Um, with, with this idea um, Revelation gets more intense and it broadens out. And so here we have like what we would all ask for, God, can you just, can you bring your wrath? Can you bring something that comes and just finally writes everything and just kill everything that stands in your way? And so God answers it. And what it, what it in, what's indicated is it still didn't work. It still didn't work. We have been what God did for us, right? This is, we thought, God, we heard the lion roar. We're like, yes, finally. And we turned around. It was a lamb that was slain. We're like, what? What Jesus came to do, right? We thought he was gonna come and whip Rome and he died on a cross. Why? To bring resurrection, to bring new life with a new source. 
When we talk about eternal life, a lot of people think that this idea of eternal life is somewhere you go when you die. I love the way Dallas Willard talks about this. He says it's not eternal life as though it's a place in the future. It's an eternal kind of life. It's an eternal kind of, it's a life that we inherit and we receive now. This is an eternal kind of life for which we've been created for and now we're being transformed into the kind of people who live this kind of life. That's a different way of us thinking about this, right? To be the kind of people who live an eternal kind of life. That's what we've gotta be transformed into. We gotta have that kind of vision for this. <clears throat> Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and this is where I was going earlier, is a Russian writer, brilliant uh, political critic. He was an atheist, uh, written wrote a lot of novels, a lot of other just uh, commentary on, on culture, particularly like political culture, and uh, just a staunch atheist. I ended up being uh, arrested and imprisoned by, by the Russians, and here is, he died about, I think, 20-something years ago. And um, here's what he says. In the intoxication of youthful success, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. I was so right and so confident in being right that I was just very content to be mean to other people. Do you know very many anybody like that? Probably not. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good and I was well supported with systemic arguments. It was only when I lay in the rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. And here's what he says. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Something first has to happen in all of us. The question that we asked last week is, is our hope in the redemption of all things or is it just in the redemption of our things? Have we just gotten where, hey, I can just take care of this and that'll be enough, I'll call it a day. Or is there someone like the blessed hope, he is purifying for himself a people, zealous for the activity that's gonna reflect this. That's what he has, that's what he's trying to do in us. So then, next moment, Revelation 10. Another angel comes in. This time the angel is standing with one foot on one side of the ocean and the other foot on the other side of the ocean. This is incredible. And he's got a little bitty scroll. And he hands the scroll to John. And John, he says, I want you to take, I want you to eat this scroll. And it's gonna be so good when you taste it. But it's gonna make you sick as a dog. That's my paraphrase. I do that in your quiet time, right? This is a great quiet time this morning. Thank you, Lord. I'm gonna tweet that out, see how this goes. Post on Instagram, whatever you do. Eat this scroll, it's gonna be sweet to your taste, sour to your stomach. And, and then out, and the, the idea is this is how, God, we, we have to take this into us. And I think what he's saying in this, there's some scholars believe that this idea that it's sweet to our taste means it's gonna make us immediately like, yeah, we, and then we're gonna realize it's something very different than what we thought. And sometimes the activity of us wanting to bring and call down God's justice on the world tastes sweet. We think it's a good idea, but then it turns into something else because it actually didn't work. And then it goes to these two witnesses that look like he talks to the, like the olive trees and the lampstands. This is all bizarre. And again, we're just hitting these moguls real fast. You're gonna be a little bit jolted. But then, they, then these, these witnesses die a horrible death as do all their followers. And it's just, it's just utterly violent. They're left in the streets. It's, just, it's this mind boggling scene. And so without going into too much detail, here's what I think it 
means to us. Because the contrast that's beginning to strike here is these witnesses come, and, the, and it says that they, they talked about them being the temple. He's measuring out the temple. There is no physical temple. So he's talking about God's people. He's talking about where, the place where God dwells within his people. These two witnesses are slaughtered, as are a lot of their followers. And I think what he's saying, and this is, you know, N.T. Wright says this a lot, says that this, this contrast between force and threat and even, I would say, political will versus self-sacrificing, others-oriented love. And what you began to see is at the end of this, the people repent. And it's interesting that the sacrifice of God's people, the willingness of God's people to give themselves accomplished what all the force at our disposal could not. It's something to think about. It's something for us to seriously consider. What is clear is that God is not avenging his rule by the way that we would if we were God. His advent, both in the incarnation and the advent that we are learning to long for, are both very different than what we'd expect or what we would do if we were God. And I want to remind you, this is how I want us to kind of close our time. I want to read this benediction of this last song here and get a vision for what is ahead and what our part in it is. This idea that the temple, this, that we, we contribute, the kind of lives that we create establish the kind of experience that we will share together. The kind of life you create, the kind of life I create, that creates the experience in which we live. And what you begin to see is that the longing of, of God's heart from the beginning, God's heart in the end, Jesus' prayer when he taught us to pray, Lord, thy will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. It was always this imagery, this overlap of temple space, the temple space where this is the place where God's will was done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're called to live in this way where we bring this kind of reconciliation. It happens in these pockets. It's the overlap. This temple is marked by God's presence, the integrity of his character being born in and through our lives. It is being, uh, it's identified by the essence of God's image, which is his love and the influence that it brings. And here's what I want you to understand. This only occurs, the only way this occurs is through the faithful witness of his followers. The only, way this, the only way we experience reconciliation in the present is in the, here, is in the faithful witness of those of us who follow Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, this is not quick and this is not instant. The effect is often very difficult to quantify. You can't necessarily measure it all the ways that we normally do, but it is impossible to overlook. In our culture, and I've been working with a lot of our city leaders, and I'm grateful for a lot of the, for so much of the service of how uh, people in our county and city, our political leaders, our work and, and serve. I'm very grateful. But I hear this all the time as we are looking for the right solutions or the right programs to solve these chronic problems. And I'm telling you, it is not gonna happen. Redemption is not a problem-solving venture. Redemption requires transformation. That means we and things have to become different. We have to become different and we have to act on the world. 
in such a way that it becomes different. We all have been a part of systems that are just really, really difficult to navigate in. I don't believe, in fact, there are programmatic solutions to any of the problems that we face in our culture. Let me tell you why. Because redemption is always relational. It will not happen without a human being extending themselves to another human being, sometimes at great cost. It is the faithful witness of those of us who bear his name that bring about the kind of change and that move us in the direction that God actually intends. I want to read this Benediction, tell you a story, give you two things we're going to do, and then I'll be done. I can do this in seven minutes. I know we're hungry. But Chick-fil-A is closed, so we're okay. (laughs) So the end of this, seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, then there's another song. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. It it has been absorbed and dissolved into another way. And he will reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God. And here's the song. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is. Because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. Does anybody notice anything missing? The first song at the beginning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come, and here we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who, wa- who is and who was. You know why? Because at this point, he's returned. And now all the things that are about to happen, the nations were angry for your wrath had come. The time had come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. We, could, we don't have time to get into all that. But here's what he says, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And some of you are like, yes, that's what I've been talking about the whole time. This is one of the difficult things about translating the scriptures into English. The word in the Greek, in the ancient languages, is not personified. It is he has returned and he is willing, he is committed to destroying all the things that destroy what God has intended. It really isn't personal. It, do I believe that people are, you know, are, are going to, be, uh, to miss out? Yes, I do. But, it, but this reads much differently. This is an undermining and everything that undermines us and keeps us from experiencing. This is why we're called to live differently because it's about redemptive activity. So we've got volunteers who serve in all kinds of different places, working with all kinds of different issues from poverty to, I mean, just you name it, we're, we're working. We've been doing this for a long time. We're, we're trying to get a little bit more organized, a little bit better um, for what we believe God's calling us to do in the near future. But there's a group that goes to one of the local um, elementary schools, public elementary school. Stuff happens in New Bern, Leland, Brunswick County, all over. All over. Um, they go to this public school and they said, hey, can we come in and just do lunch duty? 
uh, work with some of the social workers, some of the administration. Can we come in and do lunch duty? And, and listen, anytime a church goes into a public school, it's always a little bit of, oh, this is gonna be weird. Are you gonna come in and tell our kids they're going to hell? Like, yeah, be careful. Like, what are we gonna do? So there's just always that little bit of hesitation. We said, no, here's what we said. All we wanna do is to serve the teachers and to love the kids, to breathe worth and value into at lunch. One of our guys was telling us, he sat down with some kids and the first day they're like, hey, you know, what are you doing here? He said, I'm just here to have lunch. They're like, what? He said, you know, do you like to fight? It's like, no, I, I think it's better to be kind. And they have this whole conversation. And, and like the, the, first, the first week, like all the teachers, you know, they're supposed to be giving them a break. All the teachers are like making sure like they're watching the kids and they have to watch all these crazy adults who come into the school. <laughs> and then the kids like it and things are a little bit different. And then the next week, there are fewer teachers in the room and then eventually there are no teachers. I mean, last week as they were getting ready to, um, I guess for Thanksgiving break or, or whatever, they were, all the teachers were gathered at one table on the other side of the lunchroom, not anywhere near the kids, enjoying themselves, having a ball, catching up, just taking a breath before they had to go back into the class. And y'all know teachers, man, if you're a teacher, educator, working in the school system, you are a hero, right? I mean, it's hard. It has been hard. All along, COVID made it doubly hard. And so they're getting a break. And at the end, and the kids are like talking to these volunteers. And, and one of the volunteers was like this big smile as he's like laughing with these kids. And at the end of the time they were walking out, one of the folks in the school stopped one of the volunteers and said, are y'all for real? Are y'all for real? Is this for real? And he said, oh yeah, it's for real. How do you quantify that? It is so hard to go, oh yeah, here's all the, the, the numbers and the things we used to make. It's hard to quantify. It is impossible to overlook. It is redemptive activity. It is the activity that you and I engage in every day that's available in every moment to do something that brings this a little bit more tangibly. And say, so, is, is this for real? Are you, are you for real? Like you really would do this? A lot of us think that God intends to use us to eliminate the chaos in our world. Ain't gonna happen. <laughs> read, read Revelation. Our calling, if you are a follower of Jesus and growing in that direction, your calling, my calling, is to navigate the chaos faithfully and full of hope. Do not allow all the pull and all the narrative and the vortex of social media and all those other things to ruin for you the life that God has actually made available for you and I to live. The way in which the lives that we live create the experience that we are going to have in this world. This is, and it might come at great cost, we are constantly bending the culture towards the way of life under God's beautiful rule of his love. And the second thing is you just need to understand this is, this is an important distinction. Our lives serve to subvert the might and the power that governs and keeps things the way that they are. Your life is almost always gonna do that. Part of what people ask me, Mike, why don't you do this? And why don't you do that? I'm like, dude, because that is too predictable. If I say this or do this, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. It's all these other things that get underneath 
that I'm so interested in. The redemptive activity that brings about these pockets and these places that's sometimes hard to quantify is impossible to overlook. And what we do when we do this, we trust that Jesus in his return will usher in and once and for all finally destroy everything that undermines those kinds of efforts, that undermines that kind of life until we're all returned to the place we've been intended to be. And until then, our job is to faithfully navigate the chaos. Faithfully or navigate the chaos faithfully and full of hope, right? How was that mogul skiing through Revelation? Like, oh my gosh, we need, we need a nap now. Father, would you help us as you purify for yourself a people. We are redeemed. Would you purify us? And in doing so, Father, would we become zealous for redemptive activity in all the places, the tens of thousands of places that we exist. Find these pockets of reconciliation and restoration, and beauty, and hope. God, would you help us to navigate this world faithful to you and full of this blessed hope that we long for. We ask this in your son Jesus.